What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Tecco. Most people still think of telehealth as a synchronous online visit between a patient and a provider, but the real opportunity goes far beyond that. It's really the chance to redesign care at scale for a hybrid and remote world. This is particularly important with mental health treatment where the current care model presents systemic quality issues and is ill-equipped to support the growing demand for care. Long wait times for appointments, short time with the provider, cookie cutter treatment, and infrequent support. This doesn't work well for people suffering from anxiety and depression. And what it's come to is that primary care doctors are writing 80% of antidepressant prescriptions. Today, I'm talking to Brad Kittredge, the founder and CEO of one of my portfolio companies, Brightside. Brightside makes it easy to get top quality depression and anxiety care from the privacy of your home. And this includes both medication and therapy tailored to the individual's needs. Brad, thanks for being here. Really great to talk to you, Hallie. I was trying to think about when we met. Um, I believe you were at 23andMe. Yeah, and that was a long time ago. It was probably 2012, 2013. Yep, I think so, nearly 10 years ago. ago. Yeah, so can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and what ultimately led you to the work that you're doing now at Brightside? Uh, of course. Like many people, I think I got into digital health out of personal experience I was in my late 20s and in that period of life where I think I still felt kind of young and invincible. And I was honestly really disinterested in working in healthcare because I saw the healthcare system as slow and bureaucratic and in that way kind of boring, honestly. And then I had a sort of rapid onset of some health issues where overnight I had to use the healthcare system in a much more intensive way than I had ever had to before. And I had a really hard time finding the right care. I went to some doctors and they kind of shrugged at me and sent me on my way and didn't seem to care to help find the next landing for myself um, or for me. And I tried to get my own data. And believe it or not, at that point, it was still just really hard to get data from a <laughs> records office at a hospital. Yeah. And you're like, I don't have a fax machine. Felt, yeah. Well, no, they just wouldn't even give it to me. Um, they, you know, they they would give it on like a CD-ROM, but you had to wait weeks and, and, you know, if you could get it at all. And so it was just this black hole. And, and the reality is that I felt really scared. I felt unempowered and I felt like I couldn't do anything to help myself. 
And it was just sort of at the whim of whatever was happening in my body and, and not being able to find the right help for me. And that was just not a good feeling. I think we've all felt that kind of feeling in different parts of our lives where we're really unempowered. And so my reaction and my approach was to try to find something to do about it. And so I, I went online looking for tools and searching around. And at that point, really all there was were the Yahoo groups where people were sharing information and trying to help each other. And after a fair amount of searching, I found some stuff that was helpful for me. But in the process, what I felt like I really found were millions of other people like me who weren't getting what they needed out of the healthcare system. They wanted to take a more active role in their health and healthcare, but they just didn't have the tools to be able to do so. And, and at that point, they were largely not really considered a central stakeholder in the healthcare equation. And it was really the beginning of the empowered patient movement uh, that I know you were a part of and, and a lot of the work that you did, Hallie. And so it really just catalyzed a fire for me. And, and I got excited about the opportunity to build tools to help people better manage their health and healthcare and put the patient at the center of the healthcare equation, make it much more consumer driven and to, to try to do some, some innovative and impactful things. So that, that sent me off on a mission. I knew that as someone new to healthcare who just really didn't understand the complexities of uh, this system that I needed to, to get a crash course. And so I went back to school. Um, I did a master's of public health and an MBA together uh, at Berkeley and just tried to dive into the inner workings of the healthcare system and understand all the different players and incentives and structures and since then, I've been building products to try to help people manage their health and healthcare. Yeah, I um, I should have done my MPH and my MBA together. I ended up doing my MPH about a decade after. And <laughs> I, I really think they're both so valuable for really different reasons. And I think um, there's a lot of innovation that someone who has a better understanding of public health could kind of come in early and help steer you in the right direction and make sure that kind of the values of the company are aligned with patient impact. That's right. Yeah, I, I really agree with you that if you look in a, a school of public health versus a school of business, you find a really different archetype of person and studies and approaches and ideas. And so being able to, to straddle that is actually a really valuable perspective. And so I'd, I'd encourage anybody who's interested in the business of healthcare to, to really consider some, at least some coursework, if not a degree in, in public health as part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So you started off, well, I guess you worked in more traditional healthcare, you were at McKesson, and then you went to Jawbone. I'd love to hear kind of the Jawbone story. You were there early. Yeah. They, yeah. they were going to be a tech company, but then they turned into a health company and then eventually it didn't work out. You want to <laughs> give the quick story of the, yeah. you know, the Jawbone story? I imagine there are other podcasts who have gone into depth about uh, what happened with Jawbone Up. Yeah. Um, and it was a really interesting time. And, and yeah, my, my first job out of school was at McKesson. I wanted to get some exposure to traditional healthcare. And the reality is that I just did not last long there. I was not a good fit. I was just frustrated and bored. And it was that same old healthcare that I had perceived and experienced. And so I quickly started looking for a place where we could people were trying to think differently and, and approach problems and opportunities in new ways. And I had never heard of Jawbone, uh, but you know it was a technology company focused on uh, first Bluetooth headsets. And you know they had some noise canceling technology and, and some interesting headsets. And then they moved into Bluetooth speakers and did some you know, phenomenal product design. They worked with Eve Bahar at Fuse Project and really prioritized design. 
And then, I don't know, uh, I wasn't there when the decision was made, but decided to make this leap into wearables. And so Fitbit was out on the market at that point, but it was a, a little fob that goes in your pocket. There, weren't, there wasn't any wearable lifestyle tracking. And Jawbone decided to launch up and, and to be the first wearable lifestyle tracker and to focus a lot on the consumer experience and on sort of the science of habit formation and behavior change, um, really trying to focus on how people eat, sleep, and move. And I found that really interesting. Um, how do we how do we actually empower people to make better decisions day to day? And behavior change is arguably the hardest problem in healthcare. And I liked that it was a set of outsiders trying new and different approaches. It was fun to join and, and to to jump into that energy. The reality that we found, though, I, I joined right before Up was launched, um, so I wasn't around uh, with the Jawbone team in that period of formation, but. Jumped in and the product launched a few months later, and we quickly started to hear through our customer care that the product was having a lot of issues and it was failing. And you know, this was my first time working in hardware and more intensively in sort of a more consumer software. And it was really complicated to ultimately diagnose and, and figure out what to do about it. The reality is that the product design, in my opinion, was was fundamentally flawed from the start, that it was a flexible computer that you wear on your wrist and, you know, obviously a very simple computer, but flexible computers tend to break um, for lots of different reasons. Computer components are very fragile. And so the design was beautiful. There were a lot of great things about it, but in the end, the, the design was its own undoing and that the product just couldn't withstand being on people's bodies and the movement and the, the moisture and all the different things people do throughout their day. And so it was a real crisis mode. Obviously, if you're building hardware, you're investing millions of dollars in, in the design and the fabrication and, and the inventory. And Jawbone had a huge opportunity. They had shelf space you know, waiting at Target and, other, and Best Buy and other big retailers. But when the product started failing, they just couldn't you know, fill the shelf space with reliable product. And it was a scramble to, to diagnose it and try to figure it out. And there were a few interim fixes. But ultimately, that was sort of the undoing of the program. And I think probably the the downfall of the company. So there was a, they were aiming high, prioritizing a lot of the right things, but it just underlined the need for meticulous and thoughtful execution at every phase. And in the end, I learned so much there. First and foremost, you know, just really great people at Jawbone, smart people uh, from in product management was my crash course in, in product management. I learned a lot from, from my boss and manager, Travis Bogard there but also really great user-centric design. That was something that Jawbone always did well, both on the hardware and software side. And, and it was my first exposure and, and real crash course in the world of, of design that impacted everything I've done since then. Yeah, they nailed the design. I feel like it was the the hot Christmas present of, I don't know, 2013. Yeah, it, it was on everybody's wrist. It was a uh, it was a status symbol of being health conscious and it was, it really was beautiful. It's too bad. Yeah. Do you think that there's a, okay, so obviously hardware is really hard and I think it's important to note that you haven't done another hardware startup. If they had been able to get that piece right and a lot has changed in the last decade and miniaturization of these little computers is a lot easier now. Do you feel like the timing was also a piece of uh, the ultimate failure? Probably. Everything's gotten cheaper and easier and more reliable um, in incremental phases. And so being early and being first, you have to figure a lot of stuff out and, and make a bunch of things up as you go. And often companies don't get that right. And so being being first can can be an advantage and it can be a disadvantage. In this case, I think it was a disadvantage. 
at the same time as during the period where Jawbone was still operating in the space and Fitbit was, it, Fitbit was able to get a lot more iterations and product launches out. And so I think they had a different stance and a different sort of investment profile and that they were able to iterate and learn faster than Jawbone was. And ultimately, I think that's one of the things that allowed them to be successful. They kept their design simpler. And you know, you'll know, you notice in every wearable today, all of the components are in a rigid sort of central unit and all of the sort of other elements are flexible and, and don't you know have anything, any sort of distributed components or sensors around them. And, and that's really been just the winning design that balances the wearability and usability with the durability and manufacturability of all of those things. And so Jawbone had a chance to win, but I think there were several things that made it so that Fitbit was better prepared to do the things that the market needed to get through that early innovation phase. And, and you can see the success they had because of it. Yeah. Although I, I feel like now it's difficult for them to compete with the, with the Apple Watch. For I mean, sure. And that's sort of natural, natural market convergence there that early in those days, of course, they pictured a Fitbit on the wrist of every American. And, you know, I think that as they grew and saw the market saturate and start to slow, that they realized that it was a smaller market that they you know, were potentially going after. And, and once they went public, that, that's obviously hard because there's a lot of pressure to continue growing, but there are natural limits to what that market is. And so, you know, you see them trying to extend into smartwatches and smartwatches overlapping with fitness trackers and even phones overlapping with fitness trackers. That makes it difficult. And I, I think that's ultimately why their sort of growth opportunity as a public company was tapped out and, and that Google picked them up yeah. um, because I think Google can see bigger uses and broader plays for the wearability and the data. Oh, totally. And, and imagine Google's going to be positioning the Fitbit as the competitor to the iWatch. And That's right. They, more, didn't, yeah. they didn't have their own equivalent. So now they have a platform to build off of there. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears and talk about Brightside. Um, so what have been kind of like the recent, you founded this company three years ago. Is that right? Oh, it's been five now. Oh my gosh. Time flies. Time yeah. flies. Okay. Five years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, and so much has changed in the mental health space in that time, but let's go back to five years ago when you were starting Brightside. What were kind of the culmination of events that led you to believe that you wanted to pour the next five, 10 years of your life into this company? Yeah. Is, is it okay if I rewind a little bit from there? Because there were some yeah. really important experiences that led there that, that actually were, were right after Jawbone. So from Jawbone, as I went through that crash course in product management and design, I was really excited to get a call from 23andMe. And it was a company that I really admired. I had, of course, in watching the digital health space at that point, there were only a few companies that were really notable. And 23andMe, in my mind, was doing some of the coolest work of trying to make genetic testing accessible to consumers and um, was excited to get a call and be able to go join the team there as they transitioned from being in some ways kind of a, a hacky genetic startup to trying to build and scale a real consumer company. And so, you know, was really inspired by Anne, um, who's a phenomenal you know, thinker and leader and Andy Page, who came in as president there and, and just a, a great business leader. So came in and joined the team with these ideas of, of how do we, how do we make uh, genetics, both accessible and, and understandable, but also valuable and actionable. How do we take that data and help people actually change their health and their lives? And <clears throat> on my third day of work there, we got a letter from the FDA. We were sitting in a, an exec offsite and a FedEx package uh, arrived and Anne got a call that um, the FDA said they considered that test to be a medical device and that uh, 23andMe had to stop selling it and to take it through the FDA approval process. And 
there was all this excitement at the company the day before, and then just the wind out of our sails at that point. And in retrospect, what it was, and it's such a valuable experience for me because it was really a front row seat or you know, a participation in the clash between the disruptive Silicon Valley mentality of we're going to go change healthcare and we don't need to play by the rules with the traditional incumbents and stakeholders that are tasked with maintaining safety and quality in healthcare. And for a period of a few days, perhaps it was unclear, you know, what the path forward was going to be. And to her credit, Anne really rallied the company around taking the product through the FDA and figuring out a path forward and investing in doing it the right way. And that was a really hard process. If anyone has ever built a quality system, you know how painful it can be to build software under those circumstances. But we built and implemented a quality system and, and did a number of submissions to the FDA and a bunch of meetings. On the product side, we actually had to redesign all of our health reports and then demonstrate 90% comprehension of key concepts in the in a representative U.S. population at an eighth grade reading level. So essentially, we had to help eighth graders get an A in genetics. And so we went through iterative testing of qualitative and quantitative testing on tens of thousands of people to demonstrate we could do that. And ultimately, that was a key part of the approval there. But my takeaway and my real learning there was as much as I loved consumer-driven digital health and the opportunity to empower consumers and disrupt healthcare, I believed after that experience that the real way to do it was not from the outside in, like 23andMe was doing, but from the inside out. And to be a healthcare company that is consumer-friendly and uses technology to, to solve new problems, not a technology company trying to do healthcare. And so I started looking for my next thing that was going to be that. And I was excited to find a small startup called Lantern founded by uh, a guy named Alejandro Fong, who's one of the one of the best guys in digital health. Yes. And uh, really great team there doing digital cognitive behavioral therapy with coaches. And so uh, another example of a company being a little bit early in a market and, and suffering for it. But what was really cool about Lantern is they had gotten an investment from UPMC Enterprises, so the, the venture arm of, of University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And having a healthcare stakeholder invested in helping to prove out the way to actually deliver these tools in a real healthcare environment was, I thought, a great opportunity and um, brought together that idea of consumerism with, with real healthcare. And so joined that team and you know, we were doing some interesting work in the primary care clinics at UPMC, trying to make this app and experience prescribable essentially by their PCPs. But when we looked at the PCP workflow and workload and talked to the PCPs, we and, and I realized that the problem was much bigger, that the solution that I think we were looking at there was really a drop in the bucket relative to the need. And so it was sort of skirting a number of systemic problems and challenges that were present there. And, and this is one of the, the best resourced and highest quality health systems in the US. And the PCPs told us that they were overwhelmed by the demand for mental health services and support, that they didn't feel like they were in the best position to necessarily treat those patients, but that they couldn't get anybody in with psychiatry and that it was a 12-week wait for the next therapy appointment. And so what that did and what that does is it made those PCPs essentially the, the mental health care of last resort for those patients. And rather than send them on, the way, on their way, those PCPs were doing their best to treat those people and, and help them. But that fundamental mismatch, seeing that those PCPs were really guessing and checking when they were prescribing, that they couldn't really measure any outcomes with those patients or monitor their care or be responsive to their needs, 
that they didn't have much training for how to handle mental health well really didn't sit well with me. And the main reason is that my father has managed depression my whole life. And I saw the ups and downs that he's gone through. When he first sought care, it took him over 10 years to finally find a treatment that worked for him. And, you know, fortunately, he's doing well today. And, and that really changed his life. But I thought about this inherent mismatch and the systemic quality challenge where we were, we've put mental health care in the primary care setting largely, and how many tens of millions of people are affected by that and struggling with that and not getting diagnosed correctly, not getting the care they need, not getting the outcomes they need. And I just couldn't live with it. I couldn't accept it. And I kept thinking about it and was determined to find a better way. And, and that was really the genesis of Brightside. I love it. And some of these problems still persist, but you're able to solve them. So one of the problems that I see all the time is just the long wait for mental health treatment nationwide. There's not a city where there is an abundance of mental health specialists ready. And as you said, that's why PCPs tend to kind of take on these cases. But that's how right. are you making, how are you taking the fixed number of mental health professionals we have today and making them more efficient so that there's not a wait time so people can get care faster? Yeah, that's a big question with a lot of facets. And I imagine we'll touch on it in a few ways. But you're right that one of the biggest challenges and the reason that that situation exists at UPMC and, and pretty much every health system in the US is that we have a shortage of psychiatrists in particular. But in many ways, we end up with a shortage of therapists too, because this squeeze in the mental health care delivery market has made it so that a lot of practitioners end up not accepting insurance and they go out because they can make, they can make better money in a cash pay market and there's sufficient demand for them to do so. So a substantial portion of psychiatrists and therapists end up sort of going out of network. And if you're looking for in-network in care, essentially are just out of the market. And that exacerbates this shortage of providers. Um, and one of the things that we do is, you know, we are, we're committed to being an in-network solution to working with people's benefits so that healthcare remains affordable. In order to do that, we've built a platform and a set of tools and experiences, both for consumers, but also for providers, where we really treat our providers like customers, where we make it really easy and rewarding to practice on Brightside, and we help them earn really at market rates. And so in doing that, we can, uh, we can be more efficient in our care delivery, and we can take away a lot of the headaches that are additional reasons driving provider burnout and dissatisfaction in the U.S. So we make it so our providers have to do almost no administrative work. We make it so they have to do zero billing work. It's um, like a dream come true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that's really credit to my co-founder, Mimi Winsberg, who's our chief medical officer. From the first time we met, she said, we have to treat our providers like customers. Our providers in the U.S. are burnt out. They're overwhelmed. They're overlooked. And so that was core to our product strategy was really investing in tools that would make it easy and enjoyable for them to practice. We also, you know, in addition to that and helping them really use their intellectual brain and, and, and really engage in care and connect with patients, um, we want them to see the impact they're having. I think that's the reason most providers got into being providers is they, they care. And so creating a feedback loop where they can see the impact, where they can have real relationships with patients as well as a collegial connection with each other. And I think, unfortunately, in telemedicine, a lot of systems are, are sort of treating providers like cogs in a wheel, right? You've got sort of, you can rent a network and add a provider here or there, or you've got pools of providers that are just sort of waiting to, to address a need that might come up. 
And I think when providers feel like cogs in a wheel are just you know interchangeable, you know, there's not a lot of work satisfaction there. It's, it's sort of piecework. And so we just we think of it very differently. We think the right thing to do clinically is to have a one-to-one patient-provider relationship from start to finish, but also that that's what providers want and value and, and feel satisfaction from. We'll be right back after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So you guys are doing... You're moving virtual care up the clinical spectrum, and we'll soon be even treating people who are the most vulnerable through a crisis care program. And that is intended for people who are actively suicidal. Can you tell us more about this program and what led you to kind of, I, I don't think anybody else is focusing on this group specifically. Yeah, and, and that's exactly why we are, um, because it's a big mm. need and a big opportunity. We, from the start, you know, we took the care we're delivering very seriously. We weren't in a hurry necessarily to get to market. We were committed to doing it right. And my two co-founders each lost a parent to suicide. And as I mentioned, my father has struggled with depression. And so when we sat down and said, what kind of company do we want to build? We essentially said our our quality bar is that we'll only deliver the quality of care we wanted our family members to have when they needed it. And that set the bar very high. It also caused us to focus on um, the higher end of complexity and severity and acuity rather than wellness and self-care and, and where we see a lot of digital health tools that are that are necessary and important tools but are very different from what we do. And so from the start, we saw in our member population that people had very high severity and, and very high needs. So about four out of five of our members start with severe or moderately severe depression or anxiety about half start with suicidal ideation. So we oh, wow. have always treated sort of adjacent to the, the population of, of sort of suicide crisis. When you think about suicidal ideation, you can sort of bifurcate it. You can ask people if they, when they have SI, is this a vague thought or feeling, which is very common, or are you making tangible plans to actually um, think about this? So in the former, we've we've been treating those people for a long time, and we actually just next week are going to be publishing a paper in JMIR showing our outcomes specifically among the population that present with suicidal ideation and just really phenomenal outcomes of reducing and eliminating that SI. In the cases where people were actively planning for suicide, obviously that's a very high risk situation and those people need timely and attentive care. And so our stance was, you know, we don't we don't want to deliver any care that we're not confident can be safe and effective. Let's refer those people for in-person care. And I was at a conference a little over a year ago, and I met an executive from one of the national suicide nonprofits. And she was asking me about our, our position in there and our, how we can help people with suicide risk. And I told her that, and she said, you know, I really encourage you to revisit that thinking. Because when you refer those people for in-person care, 
we know how hard it is for people to find mental health care. There are you know, weeks and weeks of wait. And there's only a subset of health, mental health care providers that are comfortable treating people with suicide risk. So a lot of these patients become a hot potato. They go look, they call and call and, and try to get appointments and no one wants to take them. And so the people who need it the most, they need timely, effective care, aren't getting it. And those people end up in the ER or they end up in inpatient and, and they end up killing themselves sometimes. And so I asked Mimi to take another look at it to say, you know, can we, if we developed the right program and the right tools, safely and effectively deliver crisis care to support people with active suicide risk. And with the support of, of uh, this uh, executive, she found a program that she felt was really great, had a bunch of research behind it that we could productize and deliver on our platform and, and, and be able to support patients who are in this situation. And so, yeah, we're, we've been building it. We're really proud of that work and, and of our opportunity to help the people most in need. And we'll actually be launching that in the next two weeks in a, a couple of states and roll it out nationally by the end of the year. So huge opportunity to impact patients. As you mentioned, no one in the market is doing this. I think we'll be the first and only national provider of, of crisis care services. And you know, the real opportunity from a commercial standpoint is to partner with all the healthcare stakeholders who are already touching these people and trying to help them find care. So you know, payers and providers and employers and really help reduce ED visits and inpatient stays and, and, and negative outcomes that are really uh, costly and, and in many cases ineffective. Yeah. So I mean, you're helping them not kind of fall through the cracks when usually a provider might pass this along to in-person crisis care. You're going to be delivering this virtually and hopefully there'll be some great data that you learn because this seems a lot scalable if there is a lack of you know, experts in this area and patients end up bouncing around, it seems like a virtual option can make sense here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, with, with the advent of the 988 crisis line, you know, we're going from the large volume of calls to a massive volume of calls and people seeking crisis support. I can't remember the stats off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but you know, nearly 50,000 people a year commit suicide in the U S for every person who commits suicide there are something like 27 who attempt suicide. So there are um, nearly a million and a half suicide attempts a year. And then for everyone who attempts suicide, there are a number 200 plus who seriously consider it. So we've got probably about 15 million people a year in the U.S. seriously considering suicide and being at risk and, and sort of in this dangerous escalating situation. And so there's a major need, there's a major gap, and it, it's a, a space we intend to fill and, and deliver real help in a scalable way. Yeah. And I've heard that some um, some folks are hesitant to call the suicide hotline because they believe that they will just call the police and get law yeah. enforcement involved in their yeah. populations that it's their life would be at risk if a police officer got involved. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough problem. So, you know, we don't intend to be a replacement for a crisis line, um, right? So you may still call a crisis line and need in the moment support to deescalate. But what we would be is is you could get a referral from a crisis line to Brightside or from a provider to Brightside or, or, so that you can go from that moment of de-escalating um, and reducing yeah. your risk into a sustainable plan to bring yourself down out of that crisis area. Yep. So let's talk about how COVID changed the mental health landscape and increased the prevalence of anxiety, depression, isolation, suicide. How you started this business before COVID, you've gone now through almost three years of this pandemic. How have the needs of Americans changed in this time? 
I think we all have experienced this ourselves with our families, with our communities and, and friends and, and seen lots and lots of news about it. So it, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody that COVID has exacerbated and accelerated a lot of feelings of loneliness, of anxiety and uncertainty and associated depression. We also you know, have seen suicide rates go up. Certainly this is worse in subpopulations. You know, the youth uh, and teen market in particular is an area where there's been a lot of challenge and really spiking rates of depression, anxiety, and, and suicide risk, and a lack of resources and insufficient care to support those people. And when we started Brightside, we had a longstanding belief and thesis that mental health need in the U.S. was growing and that um, care, remote care could be an effective way to support that. If you look, for example, at the suicide rate and the data that the CDC publishes, there was a kink in the curve back around the year 2000 or 2005, where you know suicide rates had been somewhat steady for a long time or growing very slowly, and then all of a sudden they started to grow more quickly. And from you know about 2000 to 2020, we had you know a 30 to 40 percent increase in suicide rates and sort of more in in subpopulations than others. And so this trend was already happening. There are a number of forces at work in our society and in our culture and modern life that are driving increased rates of people wanting to kill themselves. And so that was already happening. We already had a crisis and COVID really accelerated and accentuated that. It made it faster and stronger and worse for lots and lots of people. And so it's been a real challenge and a real tragedy. Of course, it's been a positive thing for the telemedicine market. It's been a period where people quickly became aware of and tried and adopted remote care and found mm. that remote care was uh, not yeah. only a viable option, but in many cases, a desirable option. And so that might be the silver lining that it sort of helped people find better help faster. And providers, providers got more comfortable using these tools. That's right. That's right. And so it's setting us up to do better going forward, I think, with more solutions to try to address that problem. But we have a major, major problem on our hands and, and we need yeah. all the help we can to try to solve it. Yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest barriers to innovation in this space? There are a number of things that are barriers in healthcare. And I think we could talk a long time there. Because, <laughs> well, specifically, specifically in mental health care. Yeah. In, in mental health, for me, the biggest barrier, the sort of meta barrier that I see is that for many, many years, we have conceived of and treated depression as one thing. We've thought mm -hmm. of it as sort of a one-dimensional condition that has a few treatments and we can just sort of throw those treatments at it and we'll see how it goes. Ultimately, that mental model we believe is just wrong and, and sort of complacent, short-sighted thinking. The reality is that depression is extremely heterogeneous. You have, you know, the diagnostic criteria for depression are you've got to have one of two core symptoms and five of nine total symptoms on the DSM-5. And, and of course, it's very, it's not very hard to critique the DSM-5 and, and some of the way some of these things are measured, but they're the best things we have today. But within those nine symptoms, you can have thousands of permutations of different clusters of symptoms and different presentations. And people can have vastly different experiences of their depression. 
you know, a couple examples are, you know, there are two of the questions there that we call bivalent. So for example, one of the criteria or one of the symptoms might be sleep disturbance. But within that sleep disturbance, you could either have insomnia where you can't sleep or hypersomnia where you can barely get out of bed. Mm. You've got the absolute opposite experience, but you sort of check the box of the same diagnostic criteria. So we're actually doing an analysis right now and we'll be publishing soon an evaluation of, of all those different permutations and clusters. And we're talking, you know, over a thousand different ways that um, somebody can present. And especially if you overlay depression and anxiety together. And that's not even in, in considering sort of the severity of each one of those symptoms that are, you know, would, if they're present, would be ranked on a scale of one to three. And so that heterogeneity demands more personalized treatment to get it right for each individual, not just try to sh- throw the same treatment or same medication at everybody and hope that it works. And ultimately, when when people criticize the medication class of SSRIs and similar meds um, as saying that you know they don't have much effect over placebo, looking at the, the data from uh, some of the early clinical trials, I think that's true. That's a fair conclusion. And, and smart people have looked at it and made that conclusion. But the challenge that I believe we have there is that the trials were designed with this idea of sort of uh, depression as one thing in mind, where the inclusion criteria were just, do you have depression or not? And a couple of other things. They didn't account for this inherent heterogeneity. And what we believe is that if you take this into account, you can actually get much better effects out of this drug class, where if you can identify people who are likely to respond or unlikely to respond before you choose a medication for them, you take all the people out of your denominator who weren't going to respond and you can actually see a much bigger effect size. When you've got everyone in the same bucket, you have a regression to the mean and across the drug classes, you don't see as big of an effect size as you'd like to. But we're turning that sort of blunt instrument into a more precision approach and seeing much better outcomes. And it's a real mental frame shift for the healthcare industry. And even like physician references, like up to date, tend to still have information saying if someone if someone um, uh, qualifies for a depression or sorry if someone qualifies for a depression diagnosis try an SSRI um, and so there's just not much specific guidance or rigor around the idea of understanding and matching people to treatments and making sure to get mm-hmm. it right for them and so if I could change one thing about mental health care it would really be this frame shift of helping all of us collectively, think more deeply, understand more deeply, approach treatment with more rigor and thoughtfulness to get it right for each person. I think it's been driven in many ways by a feeling of helplessness, like mental health is so difficult and intractable and it's extremely difficult, but there is the opportunity to turn it from art to science and that Mm. process is starting and we're going, um, but we need to bring a lot of people along with that thinking and and we're trying to change that and and that's my hope that we will. Yeah. So Currently, correct me if I'm wrong, but a physician will work with a patient and try various medications until they find something that works and kind of complement that with therapy. Is there room in the future for this to be somehow more personalized using genetics or other healthcare information that could help you get it right the first time? Yeah. So if you look at that clinical trial data and and at practice, so when, when a provider prescribes an SSRI to a patient in this guess and check model, Usually they'll get it right on the first try, you know, something in the area of 35% of the time. 
using this precision medicine approach that we're using, where we take data in about every individual, we analyze it using our proprietary clinical decision support, and we make a treatment suggestion to the doctor at the time of prescribing for them to consider, um, our providers are choosing the right medication over 70% of the time on the first time. Oh, wow. And we define the right medication by the patient ultimately you know, achieving remission on that, on that medication. Yeah. And so there is the opportunity just with phenotypic data and, and more thoughtful uh, personalization to do that. And there is absolutely potential to consider more data inputs to keep getting better and better at that. So we're really investing in machine learning and mm-hmm. in our data team. So really proud to have Hans Nelson join our team as our um, SVP of data. He comes from GoodRx and just the phenomenal team over there and bringing a lot of rigorous approaches to going deeper and deeper into our opportunity to, to really make smart uh, recommendations and decisions. Of course, from my time at 23andMe, I'm really interested in genetic data and yeah. There is real potential there, but the truth is when you look at the clinical actionability of the pharmacogenomics tests for antidepressants today, the it's very limited. So the, the cost and operational delay of, of doing a test and getting the result relative to the valuable information you provide to that prescriber doesn't yet provide a, a really clear value prop. And so mm-hmm. there's more research, there's absolutely potential there. And, you know, I'm very interested in that space, but it, it actually, we're, I think we're doing much better with phenotypic data than sure. um, you could with genetic data at the moment. Yeah. I mean, you guys are getting close to the right diagnosis every time, or sorry, the right prescription every time, getting certainly closer than the status quo. That's right. Yeah. So that's, that's our goal is that every person gets the, the right uh, medication, the right dose, um, often the right combination of medications, because many people in this case, you know, benefit from more than one med as part of their treatment regimen. And we're making, you know, using data and a feedback loop and machine learning, we're making that uh, a much more scientific process to get it right, to reduce the trial and error process, manage side effects and, and maximize outcomes. Yeah. So we can't talk about online prescribing in mental health without talking about some of the hazards of prescribing drugs online. And a lot of listeners are probably aware of the company Cerebral, which was a uh, new kid on the block. I think they launched right around COVID, promising just quick access to mental health treatments online, specifically around ADHD, but they got in big trouble. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, from your perspective, kind of you've been in the space for a while, seeing kind of players come and go, where's a good place to kind of draw that line between what's safe to prescribe online and, and, and how we prescribe it online? It's a big and important question um, that has a lot of aspects to it. For us, it all started again with our, with our values and our commitment to building a real healthcare company, delivering real and robust care. And we were very cognizant that that is hard, that that takes time um, and that takes a long view and investment in systems and processes to to really achieve that rigor and that quality bar. And in doing so requires a little bit of patience for growth. And that's at odds with a lot of tech companies and tech investing and, and mentalities that really push for scale and, and that you know where a lot of companies and founders have been rewarded for driving scale. And so it's not surprising to me that there were companies in the market that made different choices about 
sort of a risk tolerance. But when the pandemic hit, when the Ryan Haidt Act was temporarily repealed for the public health emergency, and that's the act that prohibits the online prescribing of controlled substances, Mimi and I talked and, and I said, you know, what's your opinion about this? Is is this safe to do remotely? And she thought about it and she said, I just don't think it's clinically responsible. I don't think it's defensible to prescribe benzodiazepines or um, you know other controlled meds like stimulants remotely. There's just too much opportunity for abuse. It's too hard to make sure that we can do it safely and effectively. And so we chose not to do it. We just said, we're not going to take that risk. It's not worth it. Of course, there's a bunch yeah. of money to be made. These are powerful drugs, you know, that, that also have like substantial street value. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I, I want to be clear that ADHD is a real condition and, and people really need treatment for ADHD. And they've got a lot of, of challenges getting that treatment. I've heard a lot of those stories from people I know. And so I empathize with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that there were a few companies that were really chasing the growth and the profits and did not have the clinical grounding in terms of the safety or the quality or the mentality around the right clinical priorities there to keep that in check. And so, you know, there, there were a couple of companies in the space that have had a really fast growth rate because of that, but it's come back to bite them. Um, you know, the DEA and the DOJ are investigating there's the real risk of substantial penalties um, for that. Sort of the the loss of confidence of many of the healthcare stakeholders. You know, so it's in process still. It's unclear what's going to happen to those companies. But to me, you know, it just represents a, a real divergence of bright side from those companies where we are a healthcare company. We are working mm-hmm. with healthcare stakeholders like payers and providers as part of the healthcare ecosystem and adhering to all the quality and safety standards of healthcare. And there are some companies that are going to continue to be consumer companies, and they may make some different choices. And, and so, I, you know, I'm, I think the DEA is doing their job, and they're doing a great job. And we need safety and quality checks and as consumerism in healthcare really continues to emerge. The, the reality is could, people have never had to be that much of a healthcare consumer. And it's a new set of considerations and things to look for. Um, and so we've got to be proactive as an industry to establish our own quality bar, but also, you know, the regulatory bodies, I think, are taking a close look at it, um, as are the payers. And so for us, it's actually a good opportunity because, you know, some payers who had contracts with some of those companies terminated those contracts and said, you're you're not in our network anymore. Hmm. They also, because of that, did a full review of all of the contracts they have. And in, you know, having them look at our contract, it gives us an opportunity to go deeper and show them the data about the care we're delivering, the impact we're having, and the opportunity to, to go do it the right way together. Having that discipline up front kind of gives you a, a longer, bigger opportunity, That's not right. trying to That's chase right. the short dollars. I mean, pill mills have been a problem and have been around for decades. That's not what's new. It's that they're tech enabled and the scale at which they're impacting patient lives is is much larger than a single physician in West Virginia, you know, giving out too many pills to people that come in. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's at a much bigger scale. And, yeah, you know, I, I think there's one other factor at play that, that affects it is that the consumer market is a really challenging one. And I've got lots of mixed feelings about the consumer market. I love being able to reach consumers directly and engage people in their care. At the same time, there was so much venture money that came in, a lot of companies that got funded and were 
chasing the same consumers with their marketing dollars that really yeah. drove up marketing costs to acquire consumers and also caused certain companies in the market to do a lot of discounting. And so what happens though, when companies are really trying to compete on cost is that they've got to maintain some margin on the back end. And the only way to keep any kind of profit margin is to try to ration their clinical costs on the back end. And so it, the, the consumer dynamics there create a little bit of a race to the bottom where you got to try to get your price low to attract consumers, but then you can't spend too much on your clinical care to support them. And I think that's part of the cycle too, where it's dangerous to be prescribing particularly you know, controlled meds in a clinical delivery model that's just not matched to the needs of, of those considerations. Mm-hmm. So last question for you as we wrap up, if you could wave a wand and change anything in healthcare, what would it be? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a few things there because <laughs> you can't just do one when you start going. Right. Okay. So your um, wand is that you get five wishes. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, so my, my first one with, within healthcare, I wish that everybody with a chronic health condition would get mental health support. I think it's just, you know, so many Americans are managing chronic health conditions. It's clear that mental health care or that, you know, mental health is a big component of that. It's hard to manage those conditions and it comes with a lot of associated challenges and feelings and and difficulties. And that drives a lot of cost. It drives worse clinical outcomes. And we know that mental health support can help manage and mitigate that, but only a fraction of people with those needs end up actually getting mental health care. So that would be a big wand I would wave. Mm -hmm. Second, I would change Medicaid mental health service rates. You know, Medicaid, the Medicaid population is arguably the population most in need of good mental health care. And the the rates that are paid for mental health services within Medicaid are unfortunately just not financially sustainable for a mental health care delivery company. You know, you, you'll lose money on every encounter basically. And so it, it really is preventing a lot of companies from being able to effectively serve that market. Now there are risk pools and ways if you're creative about, you know, taking on risk that you can get to part of it. But we're, we're really at, I think a challenging impasse there where there's a population that needs help and I think companies like Brightside and others who want to help, but it, it's a squeeze there. And, and I think we need some real thinking and change um, and investment. Next, I would break free of the paradigm that payers are in and have been in for a long time, that reimbursement and value is quantified in clinician minutes, right? Most billing mm-hmm. codes in uh, an outpatient setting are just quantified in, in terms of how many minutes a clinician spent and you, you determine the code that has blocked for the time being, the ability for most payers to pay for asynchronous care uh, for, you know, software uh, driven care, like digital cognitive behavioral therapy for coach uh, driven care, where paraclinicians may be effective in, in a particularly if supervised by a clinician with certain populations and so it has further exacerbated the clinician shortage and the opportunity to scale effective mental health interventions. We need the payers to break out of that paradigm and, and to embrace ment- or asynchronous solutions. Of course, they have reasonable hesitations about waste, fraud, and abuse and that kind of thing. And yeah. so, you know, there's, there's a path there. So those are my healthcare ones. Yeah. For not healthcare, though, you know, the one thing <laughs> I would change is we all need to put down our phones. And I'm Mm, guilty of this too. It's something I'm working on right now. One of the main things driving this 
increase in loneliness, in anxiety and depression is that we're all spending so much time on our phones. If you actually look at that cur- that suicide curve um, that the CDC puts out, some of the strongest hypotheses of what's caused that rate of suicide to increase is the growth of use of social media and technology. It's not clear what else might have been occurring at that time that would have this sort of long-term and sustained trend. And while in the moment, it's always tempting to look at our phones and it provides this, this moment of comfort and relief or, or perhaps dopamine release, what it's doing is it's getting between us and connecting as people and being together, being present. It's also fueling, I think, a stress cycle, right? Where if I check my email or my Slack, you know, it might take away the stress in the moment of wondering what was on there. But then it just gets me starting to think about work again when I might have been present with my kids or my family or myself and just in a more calm state. And so I'm really working hard on this and it's hard. And I think we all need to take it very seriously. I don't think it's just a trivial lifestyle thing. I think this is a major trend and and epidemic really eroding our connection and happiness. And um, I think we, as a culture and as a society need to find that balance and need to be very intentional about it. Yeah. And and we didn't have social media as kids, but kids today, I mean, I can't imagine how their brains are forming around these ideas that they're getting of a picture perfect life and reinforcing. It's just such a loose tie to reality when you're on, um, on social media. That's right. Um, I've got three little kids and I, I'm really worried about it. I don't, I don't yeah. have the answers yet of how to manage that with oh, them as they grow up. And um, I know I have thing. a, I have a, a five-year-old who uh, recently told us he wants to start making YouTube videos because oh, he wow. likes to watch the, he likes to watch um, the YouTube, the brick builders on YouTube doing Legos. And right. so now right. he, he wants to do them like, oh my gosh, no, I can't have an influencer as a child. Well, I don't know. His mom is a media star. So <laughs> You might want to follow. Oh, goodness. Well, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for all your time and insights. It's so cool to hear what you're up to. And I'm I'm really proud to be a little part of Brightside. Well, thank you. It's always good to talk to you. Um, I really appreciate all the, the great work you do trying to help people understand this market, this potential, and you know, all the great people and companies that are working hard to change the way healthcare is delivered and impact lives. So Thanks for we're doing your support it. and all you're doing. Yeah, we're doing it. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening to The Heart of Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review and don't forget to subscribe. The Heart of Healthcare is produced by Hallie Teco. The show is engineered, edited, and mixed by Kyle Moore. Visit our website, heartofhealthcarepodcast.com, for show notes and episode details.